AI, accelerated cloud adoption, and hybrid work are fundamentally shifting how business gets done. The old way of securing your people, apps, and data doesn't work and scale anymore. To stay ahead, today's organizations need to reimagine their security and networking infrastructure with a cloud-first, unified, SASE architecture. Join Palo Alto Networks and leading technologists from across the globe for SASE Converge 2023, a two-day virtual experience, November 15th through 16th, revealing how SASE, powered by advanced AI, can drive better security and networking outcomes. Register today at securityweekly.com slash Palo Alto. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. We just talked with Janet Worthington about how DevSecOps is building enough trust for a no-look pass and why focusing on vulns all the time is a distraction from securing what you sell. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella, and it's just about time for the news. But first, one very short announcement. Follow us on LinkedIn for updates across our organization, for show highlights, and more. You can find us by searching for Security Weekly Productions. Now, Mr. Kinsella, you mentioned at the top, there's an old, there's a uh, top 10 list out there now. Now, so not to be outdone by the open worldwide application security project. This, this is some other group that has a top 10 list group. Now, now this group, it's not worldwide. It's just some national security agency. But since you mentioned it, we should probably cover it anyway. So um, there's my handoff to you. No look past, Mr. Oh Kinsella. Take it from here. Um. How much time do we have to spend on this? Uh, yeah, <laughs> the uh, um, as much as you can tolerate. Uh, your org and my favorite org, CISA, also called CISA by some of us. Um, I'm mispronouncing it just because you guys are giving us another top ten list. Uh, came out with another top ten list between uh, NSA and CISA. Uh, I didn't see anything new and exciting in there personally. Uh, it seems like it has a bunch of the same things, eliminate default password, provide high quality audit logs, tape steps to eliminate entire classes of vulnerabilities. Half our listeners have gone to sleep because they too have heard all these things before. So yeah. Oh, they mentioned MFA too. They don't mention... They mention FMA They don't too. mention if you're going to correctly implement F MFA. So that could be interesting, but... That's true, but fortunately, they also had a separate uh, MFA and SSO challenge uh, report that they put together. So um, once you get past the top 10 list, check out that report. I linked to it in the show notes as well. And I will say slightly begrudgingly, at least the report does have a few areas of some actionable recommendations. Uh, but otherwise, as John pointed out, it is much of the same, uh, which is possibly also a... Um, perhaps a damning observation on the state of AppSec if we're still dealing with much of the same and we haven't figured out how to raise a security awareness by doing anything other than top 10 lists. So let's move on to talking about vulns. So we have a lot of vulns this time, and I have to apologize that a lot of my vulns are in the, 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 the bowels of C code with a lot within uh, Linux as well. But I think we can learn about them. Now, there's also some curl, but let's save that for the last x.org. Uh, John, I don't even know if you have a system running X, X11, the X window system. No, you know, I see you shaking my, your my head. sunboxes, yeah. I, I've put them all to sleep. <laughs> um, yeah, we were talking before we started recording. I think any, I don't know if I'd say any, I think most modern Linux distribution, <laughs> distributions are not running X. They're running Wayland or something else. So, um, and it's partially because of things like this, right? For many, many years, X11 was... <laughs> either through insecure defaults or bugs was a favorite way to, to pop systems. Um, and uh, looks like they, they found another one here from back in the day, Mike. 
another one back in the day. But because I'm trying to actually make these articles relevant, there were a couple of things that did stand out to me. Um, so yes, thank you for the, the history and a little bit of that background of X. But what I, when I went to look at these, the patches for these two vulns, uh, these CVEs, had some fixed commits, but they also had some hardening commits. And I did like the idea that the developers were taking the time to not just fix the specific flaw, but say, let's harden some of the code around it. And that seems like a DevSecOps ops approach. Seems like a good, good way to do this. Uh, <clears throat> two of the other uh, patches that I read through, one was found by running the test cases for a different CVE through address sanitizer. And so I thought that was pretty cool to see that they're taking advantage of Clang LLVM's uh, security tooling to find more flaws. And one was found with Clang's libfuzzer. So it's nice to see fuzzing being successful and wanted to highlight that as an example of why OpenSSF is investing in fuzzing. We don't need, you know, based on our conversation with Janet, we don't need yet another way, another source of finding here are all the flaws that you have. And uh, let's just go add to that backlog of hundreds, if not thousands, mm -hmm. Here's a way to either more effectively find a bug that's going to crash your code, which is what a fuzzer is going to do. It's going to be a quality bug in security or just uh, something to fix. So I wanted to highlight it for that reason. Say, here's a lesson that we can learn, even if we're not really running our X screensavers anymore. And I think, uh, you know, don't forget my favorite ants was always fun to run on someone else's desktop, not your own. Um, but... <laughs> For our listeners, I'm just sort of clicking through the, the fixes and the, the hardenings as you've been talking about it. They're, the fixes are, for, I mean, all, all these patches are, are clean, so they're pretty quick and easy to read. Um, but for our listeners who want to sort of, you know, you know, play that game of look at the fix and go, okay, well, what, what was wrong? What's going on here? And then, okay, how do you fix it? And then how do you sort of harden your code? That's sort of, you know, step two, take the, the, the bigger approach. Um, these look like they they're, um, they'd be good to read. And it's probably also interesting since are also possible because some of these older code bases like X are like the code was um, written by, you know, one of the problems that the free BSD versus Linux arguments always been that like BSD was written by a smaller group of individuals. So there was a more consistent feel across the code versus Linux for a while. The, the argument is Linus was taking patches from anybody. We know that's not true, but um, there was a wider, uh, collection of people giving patches into that code base. So even though Linus was actually then cleaning that up and, and sort of making it look good, that was the argument. But this X code is like it's super clean. So that I think that helps makes the patches both easier to read and easier to implement. So um, for folks who are, who are into that thing or want to get into that type of thing. And I think, you know, you made that comment when we were talking with Janet about, you know, continuing education or how do we, you know, stay stay up to date and keep those muscles exercised. I think one of the reasons I include these is keeping those muscles exercised by reading other code and looking how where the flaw was or how it was fixed, which is also why I pulled in uh, Qualys. They do, they've got some great people looking at like weird dusty corners of like Linux code and C code. They found a Looney Tunables, which is a, a, a wonderful named vulnerability of, you know, not, not necessarily the sky is falling, but it, within glibc, which is the tunable capability is basically some things that you can, some, some settings you can do to influence the behavior of things like malloc or CPU, some of your hardware or P threads. So that's the type of thing you'll be tuning. But what they discovered is that in this environment variable, the parsing can go a little bit off if you forget a semicolon or you forget a comma. 
a separator between two of your uh, key value pairs. So it was really neat to see this. It's, a, it's another great write-up. Two things that stood out to me is one is was more exploitable because of some optimization that says with with C alloc rather than malloc that we're just going to give you some some memory that's ready to go. We're not going to initialize it to zero. Uh, whereas like if you're in C++ land as a minor aside, C++ will by default initialize to null, initialize to zero, but hopefully your memory is also being allocated in that way as well. Another thing, anyway, I also want to say this also had fuzzing. Now, they discovered this manually, but when they turned the fuzzer towards it, it found the flaw within a few seconds after they had provided a dictionary of tunables mm. for it. So this was something they couldn't magically just say, time to fuzz the code, find the flaw. This is why OpenSSF is investing more broadly about how to to hook up fuzzing harnesses to different code because it does need that context of what is the input. You know, is, is this expecting an image? What particular format is expecting strings, etc.? And that's a key part of having fuzzers being useful. So I thought that was some good lessons, just more generally speaking, about um, security. You know, um, I've, I've got two uh, two separate exploits for this I want to cover since the exploits came out. So Qualys was trying to do the right thing and be quiet and not not show the exploit, but um, I think it took about what four days before they came out, um, and it is fairly <laughs> simple to exploit. But uh, before I go quite there, um, oh come on, brain. Uh, okay, I'll come back to that. But so the two exploits, um, and I decided to throw two in because they're like I said, they're both they're C based, they're fairly simple, fairly fairly easy to follow along, but I thought it was interesting that um, they're not sort of two different authors, and it's interesting to see the sort of difference in, in writing styles between them. So one is 150 lines, the other one is 140 lines. So you can you can scan scan through these pretty quickly if, you're, if you've got, you know, some C skills. Neither one's super complicated, but um, it, I think what's interesting I read the I had read the vulnerability last week when it came out, and then I was reading through the exploits this morning, and it's sort of interesting to think like, can you just look at the exploit without going back and looking at the the vulnerability report and figure out what it's trying to do? Um, and that I, I would say for folks could be a, an interesting little experiment because uh, it's you can sort of see what's going on, but it it takes a little bit of time to sort of figure, oh, that's what they're doing. Um, and one of them, it's a little more clear than the other. And I'm not just talking about comments. It's literally how, I mean, it's, it's C, right? It's, it's, it's a language where you can do, um, one thing probably 10 different ways. So there's, here's two different ways to get, to sort of get there. So sort of neat. It is neat. And I was reading, I didn't include this in today's show notes, but I was reading Risky Business this morning. They were commenting about an article from Google that's giving bounties to end-day vulnerabilities, meaning here is a, here is an exploit for a vulnerability that you perhaps didn't find yourself, but their motivation for giving bounties for that is to see interesting and novel exploit techniques so that they so that Google then can see, do we have mitigations in place for this class of technique? And so I think that's a as you're describing those um, C-based exploits for 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 Looney tunables, that made me think about how interesting it is too, for in fact, why other people are also curious about different ways of being exploited. And um, really, really briefly on that one before we keep going, what I was going to say was on the fuzzing side. Um, and this feels like something I might have said before, so um, sorry if so. But it'd be interesting to, because this is this to me has always been the problem with the fuzzers is you have to. There's a set required. You can't usually just point the fire hose at your code. That's you're not trying to DOS, right? You're trying to right. fuzz. So you want a little more intelligence. Um, 
I'm really curious to see if the GPT assistance would be able to help setting up that fuzzer. So I might go play with that this afternoon. Can I either write some like a little block of code or bring one of these things into um, Copilot or the Amazon one? <laughs> I've used it, I still can't remember the name. But can I bring this code in there and say, hey, this block of code, I want to fuzz it. Can it figure out what those variables are and help me write that? That could be interesting. You read my mind. I'm glad you glad you brought that up because I neglected to mention it. Just um, as I have not neglected, though, to include the patch or the exploits for the curl uh, flaw because we don't have it yet. Uh, it's another two more days. Uh, it's October 11th. We're recording on October 9th. But I think we can still talk about it. Now, one of the things I want to say up front, too, is I'm a huge fan of the curl project. Uh, we covered its uh, what 20th anniversary a little bit uh, a few months ago. And I did include also a quote from the maintainer, Badger, or Daniel Stenberg, uh, that's talking about that you know this the security level is a blunt tool. So this isn't the type of thing that necessarily the sky is falling and everybody is going to be having to deal with. But I wanted to approach from the sense of, what if we just weren't worried and had to always scramble in scary ways due to like impending doom of vulns or zero days that are coming? What can we do to prepare? Now, this is a client side vuln, but it's, so it makes me think of things like what kind of egress controls do you have on your network? So you, typically, I think in the past, some curl exploits or vulnerabilities have been exploited by pointing the, the command to a server that sends a little bit of extra data or plays around with the protocol a little bit to, in order to trigger the vulnerability. So this is a little bit different from something like a Shellshock or a Harpley where the servers are sitting out there and you just go ping them. So egress filtering comes to mind. And of course there's, get your bingo cards ready, S-bomb, supply chain, et cetera. You know, the asset inventory of just where, where, do, where do I have curl? Because as also as the, the project said, the vuln goes back many years. So this probably isn't in HTTP 3, but it might be an HTTP 1, HTTP 2 protocol. Um, but that's where my head went, John. I'm curious, you know, is the sky falling for you? How how are you are you headed to your bunker for, for curl? Nah. Um <laughs> thank you and good night. No, I, I think there's a few things here. So for systems, and it, it depends, right? Um there, there's two types of ways this attack is probably going to come out. One is just sort of, I would refer to as drive-by, but the concept of something out there sending, just blasting out a link and hoping to see who clicks on it. It's not quite directly a drive-by, but sort of a, a broadcast, right? Um, like a, it came out over the weekend, the, in theory, the Vietnamese government was trying to hack some U.S. diplomats by, um, uh, they were posting a link on Twitter, hoping they would click on it, that type of thing, right? It's sort of, it's not really targeted, sort of, but. Um, the sec So that's going to be usually after more low value targets versus I don't necessarily consider myself a high value target, but in some ways I will have my systems that are, I try to practice what we talked about on here, so that it could be a little more hardened, a little more secured, what if type things. Um, in those situations, yeah, for me, it comes down to, I mean, I had a system it wasn't doing a ton, but it was public on the internet. I had a system that was up for, I can't remember the runtime. It was like 1,200, 1,300 days um, without reboot. So God knows what type of vulnerabilities run it, right? But it was there. It was, you could connect to it from the internet and it didn't get popped. And I think that comes down to, you mentioned egress filtering, um, obviously ingress filtering. Egress, I'd say for those of us on the OPSEC side, is probably one of the most um, undervalued things, right? Do you need to be doing outbound? 
curl outbound port 80 or 443 or whatever? Do you need any outbound? Or should you just be going through a proxy or whatever else? Um, but then on the hardening side, like it's, I was, when we were talking about this pre-show, I was teasing, I was going to go back and get some of my puppet scripts. Um, when I was running a startup several years, well, many years ago now called Stratosec, where we were doing secure infrastructure as a service for back when Amazon wasn't really doing that. So all my systems were being um, managed and um, managed basically by, with Puppet. So hardening was done through Puppet. And what I didn't say before was um, I was hardening all our VMs to CIS benchmark level hardening. So CIS benchmark for CentOS and those type of things, um, including SE Linux. So I was one of those probably, what, 10% of people out there who weren't turning off SE Linux, but actually then watching the logs and when something was not working right, actually going through and creating more SE Linux modules and doing that whole process. So it's doable. It takes a lot of work. Um, but I think those who who need, well, good, this is a dumb statement, but those who need to should be doing it. As I said, it was a dumb statement. But the, the, the tools are there. It's, it's You can do this with these systems, right? Um, dear friend of mine who passed away this year, James Flom, had a, um, he ran hackers.org for years. Um, and that never got popped for basically the same type, type of things. He was doing some really crazy stuff like change root, read-only file systems things. So even if you had an exploit, you couldn't get in. But um, it's it's possible. So, you know, I guess I'd sort of turn back to you, Mr. Threat Modeler, and say, okay, well, we know there's an exploit coming. We know it's in something very common for HTTP. How, what type of scenarios were you think that your boxes would be running in this environment or had the possibility to run this, right? Your server shouldn't be responded to a, a click-through attack. So it's going to be more, there's URL it's already using maybe. Um, there's a threat model for you, but that's probably yeah, what I think about too. And I think that's, yeah, and I think that's a great point because you can start to ask, well, one, should we be thinking about SSRF? Because, um, you know, that's that's already a vuln we should be dealing with anyway. But do our systems, can they be triggered by user-generated either content or events? Is my system going out and, it, you know, pulling down images to use for avatars for our social media system? Is it going and pulling down other types of links? Is it doing previews for, is it going to a website and training an AI model, for example? So there are a lot of ways that you can, you know, go through and ask your system about what are we building to figure out, do we make those outbound connections? And if so, are we proxying them so we can just inspect and guarantee that we're, you know, we're, we're heading to destinations we either trust or know that we don't trust, but we can monitor? Or are we also doing those from inside, for example, a Lambda, something that's isolated? Talk about the architecture of what's making this connection. So if libcurl is popped, then you don't get access to environmental variables with secrets in them or root that can go because your container was running root and these sorts of things. So, and I think the reason I wanted to highlight this, and also it was great to hear you talk about Puppet, is that I would so much rather hear a developer, hear someone spending time on hardening on and puppet mm. rather than dealing through and saying, we fixed every C, you know, every type of vuln that we found that was CVSS score 4.0 or higher. Both of those take time, but one of them I think is much more impactful yeah. than the other. And that actually it comes back to the um the X11 story too. Like they had the hardening examples in there. I mean, it we it has become cliche, but as security people, we talk about like, you know, defense in depth. Um, and yeah, obviously the OS needs to be hardened. Um, there was actually really briefly, there was another OS I was looking at when I was 
trying to dig up another story here. Wolfie is coming out from, oh, that came out from the Chain Guard guys that um, they've done a very, I don't think we've covered it, so maybe next week. It's a very minimal OS that has like SBOM and stuff sort of concepts built into it. But the idea is the same as Alpine Linux. If you make that thing smaller and smaller, there's less of a surface to attack. But you can do that in your codes too. And I think that's, um, I, I, would, I would refine that statement a little bit and say, maybe don't go after the CBSS4s, maybe go look at Puppet or, let's see, Salt or Terraform or Ansible or um, uh, CDK or uh, um, CloudFormation or um, Pulumi, or I'm probably missing a few others, but you know, go after one of those 10 million things, which, oh, Chef. That's a good list. Um, or maybe harden the code also. So yeah, it, it's take a step back, I think is the idea. And where, where's your time best spent? We're going to have to go back to another article that I had last week we didn't talk about, which was uh, OpenSSF's list of critical systems. And uh, we'll have to s compare the OpenSSF list with the JLK list, just to see what uh, Mr. Kinsella says. But the other thing that uh, you... Uh, let's switch from talking about C to talking about Python and security improvement, security hardening. Um, now, you know, talking about C, people can say often like strings, string handling uh, are not, strings are not first-class citizens in C. And they're the, thus they are a source of buffer overflows, parsing problems, all kinds of problems, um, as well as format string exploits. And here are some F strings in Python that caught your attention. And F strings are not a... A comment on the state of Python. They are actually a very specific type of string. Tell us about this, John. Yeah, so f-strings are um, uh, string literals. Uh, this is coming from their definition for string literals uh, prefaced with the upper lowercase f, commonly called f-strings. Um, and they're, yeah, they're formatted string literals in Python. And the idea that they came up with here is, um, you know, I think... Uh, it's probably a little bit similar to uh, printf in C. I know there's some of that in, in Python 2, if I remember right. But the idea is like, okay, let's have a string that's actually more than just a string. It has some ability to um, um, interpret what's inside that guy. So this concept was there earlier, but it was sort of, wasn't fully sort of fleshed out. But in Python 3.12.0, which is just being released, um, they made those uh, um, a little more accessible and prevalent and, and, and um, common within the language. Uh, so I brought it up here from the point of view of it's, okay, it's it's not so much that using f-strings by itself is going to make things secure, but it's a little more spice sense to me from the point of view of, I think we've got to, you know, um, as we provide more tools like this to a developer, something a developer has to pay attention to, but as we have more things like this, then some of the other issues we've seen from string-based vulnerabilities over the years, either string concatenation or um, possibly overflows or some other type of things. I think we can de-risk a lot of that type of code by using something like an f-string. Um, so that's definitely worth, there's some examples in, in um, some some basic and crazy examples in, in the link provided in the show notes. So folks should go take a look at that really briefly. Um, but then also when I was looking at that caught my eye a little bit further down on the list, um, a little bit further down the list. I can't even see it right now, but I know it's in here. They're also, um, um, they're moving to a new form of, of a new hashing library. Um, and now I'm confused why it's not on this list, but they are moving to, um, uh, come on, Brian, uh, HACL, the HACL project. Yeah. Uh, which 
they have gone through and done formal verifications of their hashing code. So instead of the Python guys trying to sort of build that wheel themselves and, and run a, a, a software, a language development team writing security code, they're like, let's let the security guys do that. So um, I think that's a, a pretty neat upgrade, which will hopefully also um, keep Python out of our headlines in the future. <laughs> and it is also cool to see like actual uh, production use of a formally verified code. Because mm. uh, I will say anecdotally, I've come across the, the, the fun of formal verification, if you like math and, and, and such things, but I have not seen them translated into many common projects. Um, so that's just a great approach, another security approach to see. Um, I'm going to make a segue here, John, to talk about eBPF. And what was interesting is that in our conversation with Janet, she talked about like, she used an example of a team adopting containers and figuring out how should we use containers correctly, securely, don't run them as root. I think we could also, we didn't mention, but probably say our container, we could ask the question, are containers a security boundary? Are they a security control in the first place? And uh, I think listeners can already figure out what John's answer is going to be. But you know, containers weren't created as a security control in the first place. Maybe they're misused or misunderstood as that, but eBPF also wasn't created necessarily as a security control, but it's definitely been used as one for better and worse, perhaps. Tell us a little bit of that mix. Yeah, so, um, and I think this is, I don't know if I would have known the whole of this, but um, the first version of, when eBPF, the first versions came out, it was definitely not, right? And I think uh, this is probably circa 2016, 17, 18. Uh, the initial uses of, the in initial attempts to use eBPF with either containers or other things for security was, um, it was a no-go because it was super slow. Um, they went through and they updated the language and they made things better, um, but still it's it's faster. But we now have an article from uh, our friends at Trail of Bits talking about the pitfalls of relying on eBPF. And the, the big sort of shock here is, yeah, eBPF was not created for um, monitoring or security. It's used that way by many folks, but that wasn't the original intent of it. It was, you know, um, had a, a little more intent of writing just like programs within the kernel. Um, so this is the first of three eBPF stories we're going to have here today. But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see them go through and not just talk through some of the pitfalls of what's in here. Like, um, it's how it's invoked is is a little sort of sketchy. The one which was favorite to me was um, the amount of data space you have for eBPF is is fairly small, um, 512 bytes for at stack. So if you're going to be doing comparisons, there's probably ways to get around that, right? If, if you're able, to, once you know that something is, is memory limited, but they've got workarounds for these type of things also, which is really great. Um, they're not just sort of pointing out problems, right? That's what we like to do as security people is show, show solutions. Um, limited instruction counts, so it can only be so big. And then there's potential for time of check versus time of use issues. Uh, and there's one or two more in here, but the overall point is it's you can't just say, well, we're going to use eBPF and, and be safe. And this is why I think one of the questions I had for Liz when she was on, uh, Liz Rice uh, was on talking about eBPF previously, was do we expect people at, quote unquote, at home, like at your jobs, wherever else, to be writing eBPF scripts because it's not as simple as just like scribble it. And her response was like, no, it's there's now a growing library of, of, of these tools out there that are either um, available or provided by third-party commercial companies. Um, 
So, Mike, I'm going to go ahead and hop over to um, mm-hmm. the second one, Bleach That. So, there's a, a, a tab I've been sitting on for a while, and it, it was sitting around even before I found it. So, this actually came out in 2021. But um, the folks that embrace the red, it's a, a, um, a pen testing uh, blog, have uh, our red, t- red team and blog to be specific, have um, uh, an entry on how to do offensive BPF. So, they go through, talk a little bit about how BPF works with some pictures in there. And then they go through and um, have three levels of um, capture a flag type stuff on how to use eBPF to to do things which you shouldn't, which you wouldn't expect. And I think one of the problems with BPF is um, it's a lot more powerful. And they cover this in the trailer bit language, trailer bit article also is since this wasn't specifically created for security use cases or monitoring. There's a lot more power in there with that language. You can actually have it run run stuff on your system, execute things, uh, change things around. And sometimes you might want that for maybe packet work. Um, but at the same time, if someone can figure out how to manipulate that, that that's not great. So, um, yeah. Uh, and I'll shut up after I mention the third one really briefly. Uh, for those of you who are considering going to KubeCon, Cloud NativeCon in November, I believe it's in Chicago. Yes, on the November 8th. Uh, there will be a documentary release there for eBPF, including um, the aforementioned um, um, uh, Liz Rice, excuse me. Uh, too much topic switching. But yeah, so they're coming out this- 12 bytes of stack. Yes, I've, I've just tossed myself apparently, right? <laughs> um, uh, so a documentary coming out about eBPF. There is a trailer now in our show notes. Um, I'm looking forward to people who uh, attend and watch that because um, at the moment I'm not doing either. And I had actually also thrown another conference into the show notes as well from uh, Prosimo. This is the group behind memorysafety.org. And this one is this week, this fr- or sorry, uh, the end uh, November 3rd, uh, the first week of November here in San Francisco. And, um, you know, I more just mentioned it for as a, as a resource and um, also pointed to Hickory, their their memory safe DNS uh, that has a, a new name now. There's a couple other. I'm trying to think of what articles to to, to wrap up here. There was one that I had about um, another one on Python that was uh, probably goes into our supply chain area about um, everybody who's using PyTorch. Uh, this mm-hmm. is the Shell Torch bug is potentially now exposed to some some critical vulns in the in in pytorch and everyone playing with ai and what what stood out to me is that this was a mix the vulns here were a mix of a default a default and a deserialization so it was sort of just go back to that idea of why why as we as either devsecops groups appsec groups etc are we not giving more attention to that secure by default secure by design and um, because secure by default would have helped more users out out here who are running PyTorch, possibly also in those defaults wouldn't have interrupted with what they wanted to do anyway. So this is just kind of the the the, the rant, perhaps I wanted to go on uh, the mini one about uh, secure defaults. And so check out the show notes if you want to know more about Shell Torch. That's, I think I've exhausted my interest there. Um, anything on that one, John, or do you want to pick one last one to go? I off? think really briefly on that one, then I'll see if I can pivot somewhere else. Um, the One of the problems we've had 
with um, security over time from an operational point of view, not so much the developers, but um, generally users, is you get folks who are not um, security aware or, or security caring that are suddenly trying to, you know, they've got a job, they want to get it done. I think of back from my college days, like uh, um, uh, grad students who are like, you know, they've got a computer underneath their desk and they're not there to run security on it. But this is sort of the same thing with the data scientists. I'm not trying to slur, but they're not there to, um, they're there to as quickly as possible figure out how to find algorithms and tune these algorithms. And, you know, everyone's talking about machine learning. So the sooner as you can get the stuff out there, the better. None of those words I said said anything about securing this stuff um, or the servers that they're using or the data. And we had Microsoft article last week about how they were. So the, the point being, um, you, we really need secure by default on a lot of these things, right? It's I, I, as I said, I'm not trying to slur any of those groups. They're doing what they what they're there to do, but you can't sort of expect everything out of any of us, including me remembering names. Um, let's see. Um, if you leave it to me, I would talk briefly about the Cloudflare, the ability to use Cloudflare, the ability to use Cloudflare to bypass Cloudflare. Um, and this is an article which someone came up with. I can't believe we haven't seen someone try and, and do this many, many years ago already, but uh, it turns out, and I think I've seen it in the past, I didn't go check, um, but Cloudflare, there's a switch in there which says, as part of your uh, setup, do you want systems protected within this account to be able to access other systems? You see it in VPNs too. But um, it turns out, however, that setup in some situations, other customers also fall into that category. So, um, you can uh, have one customer account actually DOS another because it's not going to be protected either by the firewalls or the DOS capabilities of Cloudflare. So, um, an interesting, uh, you know, different type of default and different type of configuration and, and what your sort of trust boundary is. But um, I thought it could be thought it could be interesting for our de our developers to think about when they're writing code. What do you protect, or what's how big is that sphere of of um, consideration? Yeah, and I think too. Also, in term in the idea of how how big is that sphere? What are the steps to to exploit this sphere to enter this sphere? Mm -hmm. uh, because you know, there's certain things too that's predicated on you still need to know the the IP address of your victim, and mm -hmm. that's not necessarily easy to do through Cloudflare. There are you know various leaks or other ways we've seen demonstrated. Um, and I'm pretty sure that Cloudflare would detect a DOS going through their own systems, trying to DOS one of their own systems. So um, it's one of those things that not all CVEs, this isn't a CVE, but not all vulns are created equal. And just as we were talking near the top about um, curl, uh, what was the the line? You know, the, the severity can be a very blunt tool, and not all problems are the same problems to all end users because of what the mitigations are, what are the attack scenarios, what are the threat scenarios, what are the steps to put this together? So I'm not trying to be dismissive out of hand about the work, but more to include and focus on the conversation AppSec should have. Like, why do we care or how much do we care rather than just, here's a vuln, go fix it. And that seems, as we were talking with Janet, just the, the, the way that hasn't worked, so let's just stop doing it. Yeah, I mean, the, the translation on this one is, are we expecting everyone who's a Cloudflare user to go and, okay, let's spend the rest of today figuring this out so we can mm -hmm. give a report to the boss tomorrow and then they'll have exact <laughs> No, probably not. Um, right. And even if you if you do this and you have an account, I mean, how many accounts would it probably take to actually do the DOS? You probably have to have multiple accounts. 
Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the folks over there we've seen are quite good automation and they'd, they'd get the whack-a-mole of this down quite quickly. Yes, but your point still stands about the, the the presentation of this information, the sense of making the UI, making it clear about what do these decisions mean, what do they imply, and what's by on by default and what's not. So, again, that really great example of user experience and communication within the security uh, realm, and our communication is done, Mr. Kinsella. We've hit our 30-minute, well, a little bit over, uh, limit for the new segment. But I want to say thank you, John, for joining me. I want to thank all of the listeners. Thank you once again to Janet as well. Please do subscribe, hit that like button, check out the show notes. And speaking of Synthwave, as I always do at the end, check out Entity from Megan McDuffie. We'll see you next time on Application Security Weekly.